So Nicholas Bornoy, second of Capital Inc, and I'd like to welcome you to uh, one panel that I think is one of the top panels of today's forum, M&A investing and financing opportunities in uh, the Jones Act space. So here we cover uh, the forum, the regulatory developments, the uh, actual uh, uh, trades uh, under the Jones Act, and now we talk about M&A investing, uh, the money aspect of it. Uh, and we have a terrific panel with major, major players uh, in the sector. So I would like to thank you all for participating. And I will turn it over to Keith Bilotti, uh, partner from Short and Kissel, uh, who is going to uh, uh, moderate the panel. And also I'd like to acknowledge, of course, the sponsorship of uh, RBC Capital Markets, Stifel and uh, Short and Kissel. And thank you to all of you for participating. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having all of us here today. Uh, we have a very exciting panel for you, uh, especially in light of uh, the world events that are unfolding before us today. Um, I think we'll start with a little introduction of the panel. I think we should just go around the horn. Maybe you guys can give me a little background about yourselves, how your platform interfaces with Jones Act companies, um, and then we'll get going on uh, you know, discussing M&A and, and investing in the Jones Act. James, should we start with you? James sure. Burner. Sure. Thanks, Keith. And yeah, we'll have to, there's two James B's, so I'll have to <laughs> names here. Um, yeah, I'm a, just introduce myself. I'm a managing director with BlackRock's Global Infrastructure Funds. Uh, I've been with uh, those set of funds uh, through really through two managers, but with the funds since 2011. Um, we have evolved from primarily being an energy infrastructure investor into also now being a transportation uh, and, and digital investor. Um, and so I'm responsible for originating investments for the funds uh, in shipping uh, US power, uh, or North American power, I should say, as well as LNG. So I do cover a, a pretty broad uh, spectrum. The funds were, were, busy, um, were busy investing out of our third fund, which is a $5 billion committed fund. We still have a billion of funds left in that. Um, and then we're looking or considering you know, when, when or how to raise additional capital. So we um, have been looking at the shipping sector for some time. We focus on chartered opportunities as our infrastructure name suggests. Uh, and the Jones Act uh, certainly is a bit of interest because of the defensive nature of it. Uh, and it lends itself to more chartered opportunities than, than some foreign flag shipping. So we are evaluating a number of opportunities in the, in the sector and develops good relationships with some of the key players. Thanks. Oh, no, we're an equity fund. Sorry, one last question. We are, an, we are primarily an equity investor in the space, for the and we're private. Thank you. The other James B. Uh... Sure. Jim Burchetta, uh, Managing Director in Oak Tree Capital's Transportation Infrastructure Group. Um, we have, I've, I've been here about uh, 16 years uh, with the group in, in, in its prior iterations. Um, we are uh, also primarily an equity uh, investor, but do have the ability to invest in other other places in the in the capital stack. Uh, and have spent a lot of time in the industry. Have made a, you know a couple small investments, uh, one larger one, and uh, look forward to the uh, the panel here. Great, Chris. Yeah, sure. So I'm a I'm a managing director at at, at Stiefel um, Nicholas. We're we're a middle market investment bank. I run the uh, marine and energy infrastructure banking practice here. I've been doing kind of transportation and, and marine investment banking for you know my entire 20-year career and done you know lots of transactions around the Jones Act and 
And we've seen a noticeable pickup in Jones Act activity over the last, um, you know, 18 months. So it's it's a particularly, you know, timely time to, you know, I think have this panel. Thanks for that. Matthew, let's uh, jump over to you. Great, thanks. Uh, Matt Thompson, uh, I've been doing this for over 25 years, did my first Jones Act deal in 1997, uh, have worked on dozens of M&A deals in the Jones Act since then. Uh, echoing what Chris said, a uh, very timely uh, panel, given that we're all uh, from an advisory uh, investment banking perspective, I think seeing a big uptick in what has been a, a relatively uh, small number of transactions over the years to where we are today. And last but not least, Josh. Thanks, Keith. Uh, yeah, Josh Shishkoff, I'm a, a principal here at Orion Energy. We're primarily a private credit focused platform with some some equity, but broadly non-control um, and our, uh, our experience is energy and infrastructure broadly, uh, usually with some energy angle that's been expanding and our, uh, certainly not Jones Act focused or expert, uh, experts there, but we're, our forays, particularly in sort of the wind, offshore wind services side uh, as a middle market, uh, primarily lender uh, in that space and, and otherwise. Super. Well, the Jones Act sector is really a diversified group of companies that's all linked together uh, by this hundred year law, you know, old law, uh, which requires that ships carrying merchandise between U.S. ports, you know, need to be owned, built, staffed by U.S. citizens. Um, you know, so it really is a, a diverse sector. Uh, but with that, you know, maybe we could start off by, you know, providing a little overview of the current M&A market, uh, the current access, you know, uh, capital markets and, and current access to capital that these companies have. Uh, maybe we could start with Chris and maybe you could focus on some sectors that you find interesting uh, and, and where you're seeing some activity here. Yeah, so I think, I think you know, just broadly speaking in, 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 in Jones, I it's a bunch of different sectors and they're all impacted by different cycles. But I think what we saw kind of broadly in, around the space was, you know, the, the, business, the, the, the Jones Act space overall started doing per, pretty well leading into, um, into COVID and then COVID hit and businesses, you know, initially were negatively impacted, especially the businesses that transport energy, which is a big sector of the, um, of, of the Jones Act business. And, and, and now we're seeing kind of, you know, a recovery in, in, in oil and energy demand since, um, since COVID, we're, we're back up to almost the same level of oil demand in the U.S. as we were at, you know, before COVID. Um, and you're seeing these businesses, you know, that, that struggled, you know, 12 months ago, you know, doing particularly well. There's a lot of owners that, you know, either before or during the struggles these businesses faced, decided they were kind of non-poor or they were private equity owners and, you know, the timing is right to, um, to, to exit. And, and there's a general kind of, you know, I think movement to consolidate the, um, the, the, the Jones Act as well. We saw ran by like American Steamship um, last year, maybe the year before that, that transaction was quite successful for them. Um, we've seen consolidation in, in the Hawaii and Alaska trades and, and that consolidation has been quite successful. So, so the, um, you know, the, the ability to consolidate cut costs and, 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 and get a little bit of pricing power, you know, is, is, is driving some consolidation. And there's a lot of unnatural owners of these businesses or private equity funds looking to opportunistically exit now that you know companies are doing much better. Um, so it's really on the MA side, I think as Matt said, where we're seeing a lot of uptick, we're, we're not seeing a lot of IPOs or 
follow-ons and there really aren't many public companies. You know, the most you know active probably Jones Act public company was Secor who, who went private last year. Thanks for that, Chris. Matthew, uh, do you have anything to add to that? I would just add that you always have uh, family businesses in the sector who are looking to transition. And when you see that, you see a lot of the consolidation. Uh, we sold uh, the flowers business uh, at the end of last year to Maritime Partners. And I think it's notable because it's another case of a, of a terrific family business going to institutional capital. And I think that's been a long-term trend we've seen. We've worked on a lot of deals in there. And I think that is going to continue. And as we see that and the consolidation that surrounds that, it's one of the reasons we're very bullish over the sector as a place to invest for good, stable returns over the long term. Thanks for that. Well, while we're talking about transactions, uh, James, maybe you could uh, tell us some of the transactions you've been finding most interesting, anything that you're, uh, you know, the types of transactions that you, you find most interesting in the space right now. Keith, I imagine you're are you talking to me. There's two again. There's two. Uh, I'm sorry, James Burner. <laughs> My you. apologies. All right. So, um, yeah, I mean, there is having tracked this space for probably three to five years. Um, there is much more activity now uh, than there has been in some time. So, you know, as I say, we are we have actually pursued in the past opportunities in the in the barge space. Um, again, we we haven't always been the uh, the highest payer, so we haven't actually necessarily succeeded in some of these. Um, and we've had negotiated discussions with a number of the companies. I think, you know, a couple areas that are obvious, and we'll talk about in more, more detail. One is offshore wind. Um, because we're an investor in both the power and the shipping sides, we see both ends of this. And, you know, I have a pretty active dialogue, understanding where those um, proposed offshore wind farms on the Eastern United States are. Um, we've already seen um, you know, a vessel, uh, installation vessel that's, that's under construction related to one, expect to see more. Um, this Jones Act is a uh, sort of a new thing for, for some of the European wind developers to, uh, to confront and to, to figure out the best way um, to structure within it. Um, we can expect to see, can see uh, great opportunities there. It's, it's a nice mix of energy transition and Jones Act. Um, we also are seeing opportunities in um, LNG fueling um, in some of the other um, regional markets. You know, we're working uh, on a, a structured investment within the space. It's not definitely not public and hasn't signed yet. Um, but so, you know, we we've got a number of opportunities that we're tracking um, as a fund, um, and you know, we continue to uh, to see good. Um, good growth uh, going forward coming out of the pandemic uh, in the Jones Act shipping space. The other James B, what transactions are you guys uh, finding most interest in? Yeah, similar, you know, without without getting too much into individual opportunities, you know, I think we're we're, you know, as a, as an infrastructure investor looking for, you know, the types of, you know, the types of investments where you're seeing more chartered or contracted uh, um, situations along with um, you know, maybe stable underlying commodity transportation and and cash flows. So, you know, really, as 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 we look through that lens, we can kind of you know have the ability to look in 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 various places in the Jones Act. And I think we've we've you know that's kind of how we've approached the market to date. And I think um, you know continue to look uh, you know for the for those types of opportunities you know across the spectrum. 
Josh, as a credit provider, what, what opportunities are you seeing and uh, what do you find uh, most interesting right now? Yeah, a couple areas. You know, the past few years, we've looked at a handful of opportunities with uh, mostly privately or family owned businesses in, you know, barge or tug or dredging or, you know, combination thereof uh, in situations where they need a more creative lender. Uh, Cause there's lots of lenders in the space that, that do regular way maritime financing. And that's a well, it's a mature market like Matt and Chris have done for, for years. Uh, so that's one where we've, we've looked at opportunities, although none have fully gotten uh, over that line. Um, and then can, you know, on the other side, more recently to what uh, James Berner was mentioning, we recently invested with, uh, you know, some entrepreneurs doing, uh, offshore wind services. So in our <clears throat> our size uh, transactions, sort of middle market, lower middle market, there's a lot of entrepreneurs doing creative things that are you know bolstered by the, the moat that is Jones Act for servicing both the construction and then you know eventually uh, operations and maintenance phase for all these projects. And so we evaluated a handful uh, on that end and, and recently uh, uh, got one across the line uh, with a company who's building uh, uh, crew transfer vessels for a few projects that are uh, moving forward in the Northeast. Super. Uh, just to shift gears a little bit here, you know, I kind of want to talk about what's going to drive growth in the sector. And you guys have all hit on the, the activity in the M&A market. So we'll kind of start there. Um, we've all seen some significant M&A, both operating companies merging with each other and, and acquiring other, other operating companies and also PE firms have been getting in, involved. Um, do you guys see this as a, as a long-term trend uh, or, or, or is this something that's just been happening recently? Uh, or are we just starting to see see the beginnings of this? Um, you know, Chris, maybe we'll start with start with you. With you. Yeah, so, you know, it's definitely the beginnings of a trend as opposed to the end, in my, in my own view. But, you know, no trends last forever, especially in capital markets and, and, and banking. So I'm sure it'll come to a um, come to an end. But, you know, we're, 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 there's definitely, you know, substantial benefits to consolidation in this space, which I think was your question, Keith, around whether the space should continue to consolidate, right? That, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, and, and so, 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 you know, there's, there's been a lot of consolidation, as I mentioned in my initial discussion, and it's been very successful. You know, customers have benefited, you know, because they get better service and companies have benefited because they get better backhaul, they have lower administrative expense. Um, and, and, and the other thing we see in Jones Act is, you know, it, it's extremely expensive to build vessels, extremely. And, and since COVID, the cost of building a lot of these vessels has gone up, you know, 30, 40% or more. I've heard companies even say certain types of assets have doubled. Like we were talking to a Jones Act company that needed chassis this morning. The cost of a chassis has doubled since, um, since COVID. So, you know, the ability to replace equipment is, is really challenging. So you've got to utilize the equipment you've got as efficiently as possible. Matthew, do you think uh, consolidation could, should continue? Oh, absolutely. This has been a 25-year trend. I mean, this has made my career and will, will I hope, uh, allow me to continue to have another decade uh, doing this. Um, we, we still have a significant number of Jones Act companies out there. We have some very good consolidators. Obviously, everyone's familiar with Kirby uh, if they're listening uh, to this call. But we have a lot of other companies that are great consolidators. To Chris's point, there are significant synergies to consolidation. I think you're going to continue to see it. We've seen some of it on the lakes recently. We'll continue to see it on the rivers. And I think logically we'll see it coastwise uh, continue as well. 
So I, I think it's just part of a very long-term trend. You can look at the rail industry and, and what happened there over a period of years. We probably won't have an additional big deal after Kansas City Southern. But if you draw a parallel to the rail industry with the Jones Act, we still have decades to come, or at least I certainly hope so. I won't have a lot to do. <laughs> uh, James Bruschetta, um, will pre private equity continue to have uh, an, art, an outsized role in, uh, in these consolidations? If yeah, not, I think so. Go ahead. You know, from our seat, um, you know, the, the, the things that are attractive about the Jones Act, uh, you know, barriers to entry, not only the statute, but, but the other barriers to entry you see, I think, are not going away. They, they've been part of the, of the Jones Act and the trade for 100 plus years. And while they may be shifting and changing a little bit, I do think um, there will continue to be interest from, from, from folks on this side of the table. James Berner, do you, do you agree with that? I agree. And, and obviously the one difference about the sector of income accounts we look at is, is which I'm sure you'll get to, is, is the limitations on ownership. And because anybody who's a fund is generally deemed a foreigner, even if they've got uh, significant USLPs. So that is, um, it's a sector that lends itself to partnering, would be one comment. Now, now should M&A in this space only contemplate pure plays or are more diversified plays more, more acceptable these days. Um, Chris, do you have a view on that? You know, I think it depends on, you know, a lot of things. I think both work. I mean, you can look at companies like Frawley and C-Corp, you know, they're very diversified. They're in lots of different businesses. Um, but then there's, you know, there's companies like Kirby that have remained quite focused on this, you know, tank barges. Um, so, so it, I, I think it depends. A lot of these Jones Act spaces are small. So, you know, if, if you want to grow, you know, beyond, you know, how you can grow in your little sector, you got to expand into new sectors. Um, but there's not necessarily a lot of synergies between sectors. So that's why I, I think both ways, you know, work and we see both strategies. Matthew, do you have anything to add to that? I think you'll I think it's very hard to stay pure play and grow. And so where you have great operators, uh, I think what you'll see is a continued expansion into other parts of the Jones Act. And I think you can think of the folks like Salt Chuck, which have multiple different uh, parts of the Jones Act covered with their business. Where you have expertise, you, you expand. I mean, the Kirby example is a good one, but they were, you know, pre the KC deal, really focused on the river system and not coastwise. So I think where you have very good operators, you have the ability to grow, but often only through expanding into new parts of the Jones Act. And I think we'll continue to see that because we do have some great operators out there who are looking to grow and are challenged at growth in their specific market. James Berner, anything to add to uh, that conversation? No, but uh, I think diversification can also be outside of Jones Act. So you could have a shipping company picking up um, maybe some rail or, or trucking assets or storage assets. And so, um, yeah, there are kind of natural adjacencies. So it, it does make a lot of sense. Um, so in, in these M&A uh, transactions that, that you guys are seeing, you know, how, how are the debt providers viewing and re reacting to the transactions? Are they, are they generally cooperative? Do they, uh, do they throw up some obstacles? Um, Josh, what, what have you been seeing? I, mean, I, I can certainly speak from the, the non-traditional lender side of things. And, and so, like I mentioned before, 
there's been situations where um, our style and our structure of capital and our partnership can be compelling, uh, but it doesn't fit the, the typical cookie cutter. And so um, I think that's where we've played a role, particularly on the on the win side. Um, I think a lot of the traditional lenders will will be there uh, in, in large size over time. They've already done that to some degree. But I think as you have nascent, you know, it's not a new market from the European perspective, but from the U.S., it's still nascent. Projects still need to get pushed through the approval pipeline. There's lawsuits, there's challenges, uh, there's contracts in place, but they're, they're not as straightforward as, you know, traditional lenders like to see. And so I think that allows us to be creative and flexible. Uh, but as that matures, I think uh, in the offshore wind specifically, that will evolve to fit more of the, uh, the center of the fairway financing for traditional lenders. And that, that's what we've seen in competing with uh, providers in the uh, you know, non-offshore. So uh, dredging and barges and tug space. There's a lot of uh, well-trodden paths to capitalize businesses or commensurate transactions there. So. Super. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and discuss uh, access to capital that these companies have. I mean, traditionally, there's been plenty of debt capital available for private owners. Public owners have been well capitalized. Uh, do you guys think that this is going to continue or do you think it'll change? Will recent events have any have any impact on this beyond the near term? Uh, maybe maybe we can go around the horn and kind of speak to that. We'll start with uh, James Bruschetta. Yeah, um, look, I, you know, I think, again, from our point of view, um, you know, the the capital that's been available, I think the receptivity we've seen on the things we're interested in, and we're looking at from a debt perspective, uh, has been pretty robust and, and you know, would, would would expect that to continue at least through the through the things we're looking at that are probably a little bit different end of the spectrum than, than some of the things Josh is looking at. Matthew? Yeah, look, I think capital is very available and will continue to be. The events of today, I think, only reinforce the need for the Jones Act and the attractiveness of a protected sector like it. We are a debt provider at RBC. Uh, we do it both off our balance sheet and through uh, syndicated finance, as well as we've done private deals. That market will continue to be available. Certainly, Josh and others have an ability to provide uh, debt finance through other uh, ways, but the debt markets are still very robust. And I think we have a lot of uh, conviction that this is Jones Act that we're talking about and not shipping. That's a line we use a lot. And Jones Act has a very different set of debt characteristics than traditional international shipping. And that allows us to access the debt markets at pretty attractive rates for a lot of deals. From an equity perspective, it is harder to access equity capital for the Jones Act due to some of the you know, protections provided by the Jones Act. You can't just go out and find uh, a foreign investor to do deals. There isn't a very deep public market. Clearly, we do have a couple exceptional companies that are public Jones Act companies. But by and large, most of the equity comes privately. That requires more work. It's not as easy as just going to a you know very liquid public market and accessing it. But the good news is there are deep pockets within the Jones Act equity market. And I think they continue to see the value in it and will continue to put capital behind it. So we're, we're optimistic that this will remain a, a robust capital market, both on the debt and equity side. Josh, do you have uh, anything to add to that? Um, no, I think uh, just one thing I'll reiterate is obviously the events of today definitely reinforce it. We, we, we came into the space certainly not being uh, maritime or Jones Act focused investors, uh, but sort of energy infrastructure broadly and, and did a lot of homework and diligence and learning and, and speaking to folks and around Jones Act and is there a risk around that and 
and got very comfortable with it. And ultimately, you know, I agree the events of today reinforce that, you know, it's, it's a very well longstanding and the rationale being, you know, maintaining U.S., you know, uh, infrastructure uh, to you know, build out uh, vessels. Uh, that's not going to go away anytime soon in our view. And therefore, Chris, the capital will remain available. Chris, any views on, uh, on, on the impact of uh, today's events and on the access of capital that these companies uh, will have? I've gotten a number of notes from our, our various desks that, you know, markets are more or less closed for new issuance, like investment grade markets closed. Um, I would assume any equity deal that's in the market today has been pulled. It's going to wait. So, I mean, there's massive volatility in the market right now. Everybody's kind of scared. It'll settle itself out, you know, at some point, hopefully quickly. I mean, it's possible that this drags on for a long time, but hopefully it settles quickly and, you know, everybody can get back to um, get back to business. But it, it's definitely, you know, having a major impact over the last, you know, couple of weeks and particularly today. Right. Now, the Jones Act, you know, J James Berner hit on this uh, and, and, and so did Matthew. Um, you know, there's a lot of barriers to entry uh, to, to get into the Jones Act space. Um, do you guys think that it provides a competitive advantage or is it really just an impediment to the, these companies growing? Um, James, maybe, but James Berner, maybe we could start sure. with you. I'd say it's both. Um, yeah, and this will touch on adequacy of capital. So it, it is challenging to own 100% as a financial investor unless you are a family office in the U.S., there before I mean it's this is not likely to become an over what's the word an opposite of overbanked an overfunded sector. Um, you know the opportunities when you look at from infrastructure fund side, they're they're decent size but they're not large, um, and it is very much kind of a relationship driven sector. So I think if you invest the time in it, and I've at least invested uh, a fair amount of time getting to know almost all the players, it it's rewarding in that you do see opportunities. And they aren't, um, you know, they aren't a solar project where you've got an unbelievable number of people wanting to throw capital at it. Um, so from that standpoint, I think it's attractive. As you say, the flip side is there are significant barriers in terms of how you have to invest your capital via different structures and frankly, how much as a percentage you can own directly or indirectly. Um, and those are a challenge. Um, you know, you can't, in, in most cases, um, own 100% of an opportunity if you're not a U.S. citizen, you've either got a partner or, you know, use some of the creative techniques that um, that you and, and other uh, Jones Act councils have, uh, have pioneered. So I think that'd be my, my general comment. James Bruschetta. Uh, I agree. Uh, you know, I think I. I think there is two sides to it from our perspective. Um, there's a real attractiveness to those barriers of entry. It does provide, you know, a, a competitive advantage. And I think, you know, the underlying rationale for, you know, for, for the Jones Act and the, and the, and the way, uh, you know, it's been set up really, really bolsters that, you know, as we look going long term. Now, uh, Chris, do you have a view on whether it, uh, the, the barriers are too much or whether it provides a competitive advantage? I mean, you know, structuring and, you know, doing these tiering uh, systems and, and, and putting in place warrants, you know, has attracted a lot of foreign investment. Um, but obviously, as James was mentioning, you know, the, the amount of foreign investment has to be limited. I mean, generally, a tier tiering structure can only, uh, you have to be a little bit more than 50-50 uh, U.S. Um, 
do you see these bids being uh, obstacles or, uh, or are folks overcoming them pretty easily? I mean, it's definitely an obstacle, like uh, particularly amongst like the private equity investors who mostly are offshore and not Jones Act qualified. Um, but we saw in the tanker space in like the, you know, kind of 2013 to 2015 period, you know, when rates went sky high and, and, and shipping um, black oil, you know, they built a whole bunch of, you know, of, 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 of barges to, to, to move the oil. So if rates go high enough, you're going to, capital is going to find a way to come in and, and build ships. So the constraint we see now is you know the cost to build those assets is literally 40, 50% higher than it was, you know, in you know five years ago. And um, and there's very little yard capacity to build these ships. Like, you know, there's shipyards have shut down. And then you've got the Navy, the US Navy is going from like 290 ships to 360 ships. They're they're taking a huge amount of the yard capacity that might have otherwise been used to build. Jones Act tonnage. So there, there's very limited ability to add new capacity, even if you wanted to. So I think this is a good segue into talking a little bit about the investors in the space. Um, you know, the Jones Act has obviously been around for a long time. You know, has the investing base changed over that period of time or, or are the same players, uh, you know, in the market uh, that have always been there? And, and we'll start with, with Matthew. I think by and large, it, it's still relatively the same business I remember from 25 years ago when, when we sold a barge business to a private equity fund. Uh, at the time, we looked at strategics, we looked at private equity, and the private equity beat the strategics and, and won the asset. When we run processes today, and, and we've, we've run numerous ones over the last several years, we continue to see strong interest from private equity funds, and they're often competing against the strategics. Now, some of the folks who are in charge of the strategics have changed. Some of the strategics names have changed. Some of the funds are the same. Some of the funds are different. But when we think about who's actually out there looking to invest, I think it's relatively similar. Uh, we have seen uh, slightly more institutional capital as that mix of kind of family businesses has shrunk in the overall Jones Act. But I think what's remarkable is over the period of time, it is still a relatively similar process when we think about looking for uh, new candidates to own a business that we saw 25 years ago. James Bruschetta, do you have a view on that? Uh, not, not a very differing view. Um, I think that I think that's generally right. I mean, I think there's you know as, as we've been sort of studying the sector in detail for the past seven eight years, you know there's there's been a you know I think a good mix of family institutional and 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 you know public and 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 I think while that will change and shift, you know I think it's likely to remain um, you know relatively the same over over time. Josh. Yeah, I mean, I think my <clears throat> put more weight into to Matt's view than mine, but uh, I think you know, being uh, a non-traditional lender, I think uh, one of the reasons our our mandate was something we started was because we saw a lack of non-traditional, more creative lending in multiple spaces, and I think that that might be a small part of Jones Act, particularly in nascent markets like offshore wind and other things that are uh, less mature and less well trodden, where there's lots of players that will continue to be available. Uh, so that might be a slight difference today, but that's more of a, a capital trend that sort of is expanding to multiple sectors, parts of Jones Act included, than it is a comment on the Jones Act specifically. So. Mm -hmm. Now, investing in the Jones Act space, um, you know, presents different challenges for, for investors. 
there's there's significant penalties for non-compliance with with the Jones Act. Uh, you could lose your cargo. There's civil fines. You know, in certain cases, there's criminal penalties. You know, when you guys look at an investment in the Jones Act, do you approach it any differently than you would uh, investments in other spaces? Uh, James Berner, maybe we could start start with you. I think your lead-in uh, led to an obvious answer, which is yes, <laughs> we do treat it differently. Um, as you said, uh, you know, we very much, uh, we've looked at structured investing and sort of straight up equity investing. Um, you know, we, I'll give you an advertisement. You know, we retain extremely well-qualified, experienced Jones Act counsel up front um, to evaluate um, any structure we consider investing through, as well as what we'll do the process potentially to um, to get it uh, to get it approved if necessary. Um, there's also some tax considerations that, that are driven by it as well. So, yeah, absolutely, I would say this. There's more structuring involved here than there might be in some some sectors that don't have those protected elements. Right. Now, now ESG is in, in high focus, especially in, uh, in, in the shipping industry. Um, how do you guys evaluate Jones Act companies from, from an ESG perspective? You know, the, uh, from an E part, you know, it's obviously a carbon heavy industry. Ships are a little bit older, um, not a lot of space at yards. You know, the other aspect is that, you know, there's generally a lot of unions involved. Uh, maybe a little better from a social aspect. You know, how do you guys think about ESG in, in the context of the Jones Act as, as you think about investing? And we'll start with uh, James, James Bruchetta on this. Yeah, obviously critically important to our to our analysis. Um, look, one of the one of the ways, you know, on the on the E, uh, you know, the E of the ESG we look at is are, are the, you know, how would the cargoes, you know, you may be carrying otherwise be transported there? And what's the total overall calculation? So that's obviously a huge part. Um, you know, when you look at the total picture of, of the transportation of those goods and look on, on the S side, obviously similarly important. Um, you know, the, a lot of the companies we invest in are, you know, very heavily union. We are, we are generally pro union and, 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 and have no issue, you know, with that we've, we've negotiated that in the past and you know uh think it's important that 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 leg of the stool is you know taken care of also chris yeah i mean i i can say we've seen like a, a huge rise of importance of, of esg towards you know towards buy side investors so guys like you know our two james's you know a, a year and a half ago I, I don't think it would have even come up in conversation now Every single deal that comes up in conversation, all the businesses that we're selling, you know, we, we, we dedicate, you know, several pages of the marketing materials to ESG. Um, you know, the ESG that's really, you know, I, I guess focused on most with shipping is it, it, it right now is it's the lowest carbon way to move goods um, around the U.S. I, I know that was mentioned before. But it's, you know, it, it's literally like 40 or 50 times more efficient than a truck. It's, it's like 25% more efficient than a rail car. We don't really have any way to make ships, you know, not release carbon at this point. You know, at some point down the road, there may be alternative fuels that, you know, are carbon neutral. But for now, you know, it, it's the lowest carbon way to move goods. And you know, the more you can move on a ship, the less carbon you're going to release. Um, so that, that's really how we focused on it. Super. Well, now I know uh, no one likes to give predictions, especially in the uh, 
in the shipping business. So we'll talk about it in terms of, of, of trends. Um, you know, maybe you guys can discuss a little bit about this, the supply and demand outlook um, going forward in some of these sectors. You know, I know some of you hit on it that, uh, you know, there's yard capacity issues. Um, people need to retrofit vessels to, to comply with environmental uh, regulations. Uh, wind is, is, is coming online. Um, maybe you can just talk a little bit about what you see as far as supply and demand and how it's impacting various sectors in the uh, in the Jones Act space. And uh, we could start with James Werner on that. Yeah, and I think um, you guys touched on some of it. Obviously, now is a particularly difficult time to, to build anything. Um, as we've mentioned, there's never much great shipyard capacity to begin with. And then when you add in competing with um, the U.S. Department of Defense and the price of steel and labor going up substantially, um, you, you know, you, that the supply of ships should be constrained. Um, and, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic. We've clearly seen pretty uh, strong bounce back in a few sectors. And I think some of that will continue um, driving demand. Obviously, you got some headwinds or sorry, tailwinds on the infrastructure side from infrastructure bill and other things. Um, and commodity prices are going up. I'd say the one read through from today's events, because you know, Russia doesn't really touch the Jones Act too much, but is commodities uh, and um, volatility in commodity markets. So all those to me suggest, yeah, you probably, and it may be more of a near-term than a long-term phenomenon, um, will have you know, demand growing while the supply of ships is constrained. Um, and I think those would be, and again, I'm probably the, the, the least experienced of, of, of most of the panelists here, but th those would be my headline observations. Matthew, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think one very important component we haven't talked about is rate. And so when you think about what's happened with the steel costs, the rate that we're seeing in the market, again, broadly across the Jones Act, so there are specific examples where it differs, but broadly speaking, the rate that we have that we're seeing the providers charging customers doesn't justify reinvestment in equipment. So what you're going to have to see is rates move up to justify the steel and the labor costs, which are now required to build new equipment. So while there are capacity constraints, there are also economic constraints. And those economic constraints are one of the major reasons we're so bullish on the value of assets today. Because what you're going to see is a lack of new supply coming because the rate environment doesn't justify significant additions. And so what's going to happen logically is we are going to continue to see scrapping. We have very good scrap prices. We are going to continue to see some good demand. And what that's going to do is push the rate environment much higher so that we can get to a place where reinvestment makes sense. And so we think that logically you are going to see a very good environment for broadly speaking Jones Act operators over the next several years, in large part because of the steel, because of the labor component, which is going to restrict the, the new supply coming on. For as long as the Jones Act has been around, people have been talking about repealing it. Um, does that impact in how you invest in the space, how you price assets? Uh, Josh, any views on that? Yeah, I think maybe it'll be interesting for some folks who have been this in this market in Jones Act for a while, like, like Matt and others, but for, for us and Orion being relatively new to Jones Act specific risk, this is a big question us and all of our stakeholders have in the beginning. <clears throat> and after talking to a lot of experts in council, we pretty quickly came to the conclusion that it's very low risk. And I'm sure there'll probably be uh, 
episodic events where there's short-term waivers or otherwise so that certain growing markets don't get slowed. But uh, in the long run, uh, it's going to remain and going to be supportive. And uh, sort of on your previous question, it's it's us, it's a barrier to entry. It's a positive. And the impediment, I think, is the capital availability. But Jones Act, I think, is a big positive for investors in the U.S. Uh, on the side. So. Well, I think we're, we're just about out of time here. And uh, Chris, I'll leave it to you. Any, any closing thoughts? Um, you know, I guess my closing thoughts would be, you know, the, the, Jones, the Jones Act shipping space overall is still recovering from COVID. You know, it's, it's, you know, most companies aren't earning as much as they earned in 2019, um, but they're all recovering pretty quickly. I think the outlook's quite favorable. Um, we all talked about the constraints of building new ships. Ships are getting older and need to get scrapped in this space as well. So um, I, I think it's a good time to be, be an investor. Well, I just want to thank all the panelists uh, for a very informative and insightful discussion. And Nicholas, thank you for having us here today. Um, always a pleasure to be at your conferences. Thank you. Likewise, uh, thank you, Keith and uh, James, uh, Matthew, Chris, Zost, and uh, James. Uh, it's been a great discussion. And frankly, you play such a critical role in the industry. So I'm, I'm absolutely privileged to have you uh, on this panel, all of you. Thank you, and kids, thank you for uh, moderating it. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.